Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to another special reef keeping edition of the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. I'm your host, Rob Weatherly. This week, I bring you an interview with a man that needs no introduction, the guru of all lighting, Dr. Sanjay Joshi. Uh, he's going to join me this week to talk about an a article he did on metal halide lighting. So without further ado, I'd like to just jump right into that interview, and here it is. Sanjay, welcome back to the Talking Reef podcast. Rob, thanks for inviting me. Good. Now, we're going to start off here going over an article that you did on this month's reef keeping on metal halides, uh, metal halide lights. Now, I'd like to start off in the beginning uh, here because uh, some time ago I did a show on metal halide lights. So uh, I think this would be a good supplementation to that. And one of the t- items that I kind of glossed over a little bit um, that maybe you can fill in the, the gaps a little bit is uh, exactly what is a metal halide light. And from the perspective of we we know that it's essentially a, you know a, an HID bulb, a really bright light. Um, right. But what exactly is in it? What is the metal halide? What is the the from a materials point of view? What is that metal halide that's in there? Yeah. So basically, this the metal halides are a type of HID lamps. And the biggest difference is that along with the mercury and the inert gases, they also use the halides of some of the metals. For example, sodium halides, thallium, indium, candium, and and the other one is a dysprosium iodide. So basically what these halides do is they change the spectrum of the light that's emitted. So instead of just getting the typical light that you'd get from a mercury vapor lamp, having these halides actually give you the different spectral peaks and a much wider distribution of the light. Okay. So by adjusting the amounts and quantities of certain types of halides in there, that's what's giving us the ability to control that spectrum. The color, right. And the color and the spectrum, yeah. Gotcha. For example, like these, quote, 20K lamps that are very blue, Okay, they'll probably have this indium halides in there in a higher concentration, allowing them to produce more blue light. Okay, now, yep, that makes a lot more sense. Uh, now, something I wanted to move on to a little bit is that uh, we know there are two main styles of metal halide bulbs. There's a single-ended and double-ended bulbs. Besides the obvious design differences and physical differences from you know from a design standpoint, um, what are the practical differences in why you would use one type of bulb versus another? I mean, as far as light output is concerned, they pretty much should produce the same kind of same amount of light. There may be small differences because of the ballast being used and so on. But in general, I mean, there's nothing that says that a double-ended bulb is better than a single-ended bulb. Given that the differences, I think, come in from the fact that the double-ended bulb is a much smaller bulb. So it allows you to make smaller fixtures. Also, being a smaller bulb, it allows you to maybe pull the light out of the reflector a little bit better. Mm-hmm. The light that reflects off the reflector and shoots back at the bulb 
since the bulb is smaller, less of it hits the bulb when it's coming out again, right. reflecting. Whereas in the, in the single-ended bulbs, the bulb is much bigger. So the reflectors tend to be much bigger, and there's more probability of the light being reflected hitting the bulb again. So you may have some trouble in extracting the light as well as, uh, as you can with the double-ended bulbs. Now, is there any difference um, from an energy efficiency standpoint? Is does I mean they're both. Let's say we have two, two hundred and fifty watt bulbs. One's single ended, one's double ended. Is there any difference in difference in the efficiency of the bulb? No. Okay, so they're both just going to consume the same amount of time. How about uh, uh, like the longevity? Do do does either one of them have a longer lifespan, or does it hold the color? Longer the, than the other the one. Double-ended may have maybe a little bit better in their lifespan because they tend to maybe have higher pressures inside mm-hmm. compared to some of the single-endeds. Because the single-endeds will often have another probe coming in, and you know, so the, the issues of probe versus standard start play a little bit of a role uh, in the design of the lamp. But in general, you can't make a sweeping statement and say that double-endeds are always better. Right. Single-ended. So if you were to go to my website and check the data, you'll see that. But that's not always the case. Right. So uh, generally what it sounds like, the only thing that we really can generalize and say is that the double-ended bulbs are much smaller and they're going to allow you to work in an area that's much more compact. You're not going to need uh, reflectors, hoods, uh, or canopies that are as large as you might need with a double-ended, or uh, I'm sorry, with a single-ended bulb. Right, but in, again, larger reflectors will tend to perform better than the smaller ones, mm-hmm. even okay. for the double-ended lamps. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Now, moving on a little bit, um, the color spectrum is more of like a, a, a situational or, pref- or preferential thing. I mean, some of us may want to go with a, a more yellowish color or more white color or more blue color, but... Um, one of the things that you talked about a little bit in the article, uh, it didn't get into the exact details of, or um, what are some of the guidelines involved in choosing the the strength of the bulb? When do you pick a 150-watt bulb or 175-watt bulb or 250 or 400? Or When is each one applicable? Is there any guidelines you can give us on that? Yeah, I mean, again, it's going to depend a lot on what you want to keep. Mm-hmm. Start with the animal itself. So if you're going to keep soft corals, they generally require, they will do fine with lower light levels. Right. So if I was, for example, setting up a 55-gallon or 75-gallon tank, and I was going to keep mostly soft corals, you know, 150-watt lamps would probably be more than enough. Right. Uh, But if you wanted to keep, you know, stony corals with clams... That somewhere right. probably you may still you'll still be able to keep some of them in only in maybe in the top third of the tank. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing to look at is the depth of the tank, top to bottom depth. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you have a shallow tank, then you can maybe get away with a lower wattage lamp as opposed to having a deep tank because it doesn't have as far to penetrate into the tank. Right, right, and not, that's right. So you know. Just as a general guideline, I tell people, if your tank is 24 inches in depth from top to bottom, 
my experience says that you can basically get a, get by with 250 watts easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can keep stony coils in that tank. I've done that before. Right. If it's more than um, that, then you're probably going to want to look at a higher wattage bulb. Right. When you get to 30 inches depth, then 400 watts, you know, is a good 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 choice. Gotcha. At 24 inches, you know, 250, 400 both work really well. Mm-hmm. And I've seen good tanks with 250s, and I've seen uh, good tanks using 400s on that. The other thing that complicates things a little bit is the fact that there are some bad bulbs out there where a 400-watt bulb may actually have less output than a 250-watt bulb. Now, you say bad bad bulbs. Do you mean from a brand standpoint or just from a... Output output standpoint, yeah. So, a... I mean, in my tests, I've seen certain combination of lamps and ballast where a 400-watt bulb puts out less light than a 250-watt. Okay, so it's 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 more of a bad setup than it is, say, I just right. happen to get unlucky and get a bad um, product, uh, you yeah, know, a bad just, bulb. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a different design of the bulb, I guess, and we probably don't have the right ballast for it. Okay. So some of that situation might also exist. So, again, another great reason to, uh, you know, check out the data if you're doing a, a do-it-yourself setup and make sure that you're getting a good right. combination of um, of bulb and ballast and uh, uh, something we're going to talk about later that's very important also is the reflectors and right. the quality of the light that actually gets into your tank. But uh, before we get into that, something else I wanted to talk about was um, uh, the difference in the probe start and the pulse start. Now, in your article, uh, there's some very nice diagrams. And I know that when I talked about this on the lighting show that I did, uh, I didn't have very good, you know, I, the diagrams that I have weren't very good, and I tried to give a, a verbal description of them. Um, but I'd like to let everybody know that these these diagrams really help uh, people understand what the, the differences are. So I'd like to refer everybody to the article to take a look at these. But uh, on that note, can you take a minute and kind of give us a description of what the difference between a probe start and a pulse start light are? Yeah, the easiest way to distinguish whether you have a pulse start or a probe start lamp is to look at the inner envelope, okay? And inside, if you look at the inner envelope carefully, you'll basically see that a standard or a probe start lamp basically has three wires going into into the arc tube. Mm-hmm. So those three wires are the three electrodes. Two of the electrodes are going to be used to start the arc. So there's two close together, and what you do is you basically use those two to initially ignite the arc, and then the arc jumps over to the third electrode, which is the one further away. Right. And as soon as the bulb then gets fired, then there's a there is some mechanism built in with a bimetallic strip that basically disconnects then this starting electrode from the circuit. Gotcha. And so, I know there's there's good diagrams, especially of that little mechanical strip and right. showing how that works. Yeah, we have to thank Venture for letting us use those diagrams. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's basically the, the the probe start or the standard start lamp. The pulse start, they don't have this third starting electrode. Basically what they do is they use an additional igniter in the ballast circuit. And this igniter then provides you a very high voltage pulse directly across the electrodes to start the lamp. So we basically eliminate the third electrode, 
And what that allows the manufacturers to do is you can actually have higher pressures inside the arc tube. And that makes for a more stable arc. Okay, so what, what what you're saying here basically is that in the in the probe start, um, you've got this third electrode that's in there, and it's gonna it's really close to one of the other ones, so it can cause like this short arc right. to kind of get things going. But in in the right. pulse start, uh, the ballast is actually going to give it like a super powered jolt in the very beginning to right. establish that initial arc all the way across the the envelope. To the right. because you've got the electrodes on opposite ends, right? And uh, so that helps get in the ball fire. Now I'm going to assume after we get that pulse start, then the 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 current backs off to a normal rate. Yeah, as the, the ball igniter just provides this pulse, initial pulses to start the, the the lamp. Right now, an obvious comment, uh, maybe for for me or you, but something we should probably note is that uh, it's important to note if you have pulse start or probe start bulbs because the ballasts are different you they're not interchangeable correct well technically they're they're they are not but again in certain cases you can use them you can use a standard lamp on a pulse start ballast because because the starting specifications tend to be the same okay well the op- the operating conditions tend to be the same Okay, it's just—is it just going to give you more of a problem starting it or a slower start? You will have problems. So there will be certain situations if you had a pulse start bulb and you put it on a standard ballast, you may have trouble starting it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Gotcha. Um, now, uh, I think that's probably it from a, a probe start pulse start. Is there is there anything else from a, a ballast point of view that might be important here? I think we covered that pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the only only thing that we should emphasize is that. It's important to make sure that your ballast and your lamps match. Right. You might get lucky and you might your bulbs might work, but then there might be situations where they don't. Right. So it's not something you want to go after and try to, to mismatch your bulbs and your ballast. So um, no. it, to go out and try to make sure that you, you put forth the effort, make sure that you do your research and get the good, right equipment that's going to match up with everything that you got. Right. Gotcha. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about is... Uh, a, a topic that is something that you mentioned in your article and from my understanding is a very controversial topic and you know whether it's how important it is I'm really not sure but I'm going to go ahead and ask anyways um, now if anybody takes a look at the diagrams or has looked at the inner envelope of one of these metal halide bulbs you know that there's this little uh, I think it's called technically it's called an exhaust vent and it's right. In, That's how they insert the gases into the arc tube. Right. And in the hobby, we've kind of given it this. We've started referring to it just simply as a as a nipple. Right. Um, so on these this inner envelope, we've got this nipple or vent. And some of the discussion that just that just goes all over the place is when we're setting up our single ended metal halide bulbs. Now, my understanding is uh, double ended. It doesn't matter. Too. They have the they have the same same exhaust tip, but they can only go into the they can the only go in one, one way. Right, so you have no choice. Right, so but in the in the single ended, it's a lot of controversy over do, where do I point the nipple to get the best results? Do I point it up? Do I point it down? You know, you know, or just out away from the tank in a horizontal position? So, is it vertically towards or away from the tank or horizontal? Um, 
you know, and it, it seems to be everybody's got their own opinion on, on what's the best way to do this. Uh, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, if you if you look at most of the controversies that came around on the orientation of the nipples, really started because some people were having trouble with with the light output from their lamps. There were there were these uh, lamps were supposed to be blue, and they were burning in a yellow coloration when the nipple was oriented, um, I guess, pointing downwards. So people did some tests. And one of the conclusions was that the orientation of the nipple does make a difference in the light output. Well, part of the problem with those tests is that we are only taking a single point reading. So, yes, when you take a single point reading, and if your nipple is obstructing the light somehow from going to your sensor, it's going to show a reduced reading. Or if it tends to focus that light, then it might show an increased reading. But in reality, the way you use these lamps, they'll always be inside a reflector. Mm -hmm. And the light is being spread in all different directions. So the impact of having one spot uh, is going to be pretty much negated. So So basically, because what you're saying is is because these bulbs sit in the reflector and um, we're measuring more than just the downward amount of light. Well, it, I, mean, I mean, basically, light is getting spread all over the place now. Right. So it's, we're not just measuring the light that's shooting straight down from it. We're also measuring all the light that gets into the reflector and all of that light that gets brought down. Right. And exactly. the the little difference that that that, that nipple could have, the little difference in effect that that nipple is going to have on the amount of light is basically washed out with the amount of right. light that is being brought in from everywhere else that we're going to be talking about exactly so um i i don't want to say but we can put the, it to the rest recommendation but... I mean, the recommendation i make to people is to have it pointing upwards only based on some evidence and some statements that i've read that if you have it pointing downwards and when the metal halides cool and condense they might get into this exhaust vent and then when you start the bulb up again they may not all get vaporized, and that might affect the color temperature and so on. Okay. And now, just to reiterate what you said, that that is based on you know limited results and some things that you've read, and that's not something that you fully tested, correct? Yeah. Okay. So anyways, I, I guess the, the, the short bullet point here is that at the end of the day, it's not that big of a difference, but if you want to do something specifically and for a reason – um, the advice here is to point the nipple upwards to prevent right. or reduce the possibility of the halide settling inside that vent and possibly uh, adjusting the intensity or the spectrum of the of the light from those if they do not get revaporized. Right. Does that summarize it pretty good? <laughs> yeah, that does. Okay, good. Um, now, uh, you had a good breakdown in the article um, of of light to ballast configuration where you go through and you list out a whole different ty- uh, list of specific lights and, and ballast and stuff like that. Um, so I'd like to refer people to that article for more details on that. But uh, just a note on the ballast, uh, can you take a minute and talk a little bit about the circuit types and configurations? What are the different types of ballast and what are the important things to look at when we're when we're making choices? Sure. First, I want to thank Paul Hirovin for helping 
actually he did all the work of putting that table together. <laughs> Great. Uh, so he deserves credit for that table. Uh, he's he's been very very meticulous in keeping track of which lamps in the hobby are you know are pulse starts and uh, probe starts and what kind of electrical specifications they were designed to. Mm-hmm. So that table is very useful from that point of view. Now that said, I mean basically when you come down to ballast, really you're matching the ballast with the bulb. And ballasts are specified based on the ANSI standard, at least in the US, where the standards essentially specify the operating, I guess, uh, the parameters of the bulb, as well as the ballast. Mm-hmm. And the European standards are a little bit different. So again, that's why we have sometimes have problems using European bulbs right. on not, some of the American ballasts. Not intermixing them. Um, but these ballasts that we get in the U.S., they basically come in several different circuit types. And these circuit types were designed primarily to address issues such as, well, what happens if my input voltage drops? I don't want my out, my lamps to start having a different output. Right. So if you want a circuit that's more stable to the fluctuations in input, Okay, if that's a concern, mm-hmm. then you would use these what we typically use the constant wattage auto transformers of the CWA circuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, power factor is another element that uh, plays a role, especially you're paying for power. And then there are different circuits that try to address the issues of power factor. So without again getting into too much details in the technicalities of the circuit. Um, most of the matching that we should do is based on the ANSI standard. So, for example, if my if my lamp is designed as an M80 ANSI standard, then I should just go and look for an M80 ballast and not really get too concerned about what the circuit type is. So that's kind of what we need to do with these lamps. So from a circuit type standpoint, what you're saying is just – while there are technical details, the relevancy is is I guess null. What you really want to do is just make sure you're matching up your bal your ballast and your lamp properly uh with the with the ANSI type. Yeah, that that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I mean you could have a let's say for example M fifty seven, which is a one one seventy five watt ballast. Right? Mm-hmm. For that, I could get maybe two or three. The, the specifications call for certain operating conditions, but I can get the same operating conditions with different ballast types. And the circuit type will then dictate how how the design criteria is actually implemented. Gotcha. So, I mean, like the, the most common one, that we use for metal halides in this country is the constant wattage auto transformer. Mm-hmm. And that's basically a core and coil ballast with a capacitor in series. Okay. Now this is, you know, like, as we mentioned, this is, um, you know, something that hobbyists want to be aware of, probably want to keep an eye out for and make sure that if they are doing full DIY work that they really just, you know, make sure that they're matching stuff up right. 
but when we're actually, you know, matching up the balls, some of the more important things that we might want to be looking at is um, the differences between, you know, electronic ballast, magnetic ballast, coil ballast, stuff like that. Um, right. You want to take a minute and kind of elaborate on those a little bit? Yeah, basically the the, the ballasts are going to be of two types. They're either magnetic or going to be electronic. Mm-hmm. Uh, magnetic ones, they'll be the standard magnetic ones. They could be the pulse start, right? And they could be the other ones, the uh, high power factor magnetic ballasts. So the choices when it comes down to it is, you know, do I need a standard ballast, do I need a pulse start ballast, or do I need an electronic ballast? Uh, the electronic ballasts tend to operate most lamps without any problems. And you might have problems when you start taking a pulse start lamp and trying to use it with a standard ballast. So electronic ballasts, on the other hand, from what I've noticed in a lot of my tests, that the light output using electronic ballast tends to be less. The light output on an electronic ballast? The light output from the bulbs, yeah. Okay. But on the, um, you know, they also use less electricity, so the input is also less. Gotcha. So if somebody's concerned about saving electricity, then they might want to look, and they're willing to trade off a little bit of light, then they should definitely look into the electronic ballast. Okay, so the electronic ballasts are a little bit more efficient. Um, less electricity usually means that they're going to run a little bit cooler, um, but you're also going to likely lose a little bit in your light output uh, from right. that. Right, so that's the trade-off that we have to make. It's not a bad trade-off to make, actually, because you can always adjust the intensity of the light by lowering the lights. Mm-hmm. There's another factor in this whole light equation that people tend to overlook, that you know, by if you have a lower intensity light and and you reduce the distance of the light from the object, you can get the same amount of light reach, reaching the object. Right. Then it's net net. It's if you take a a bulb and you reduce its output but move it, you know, three, four, lower. five inches closer to the water surface, then you're yeah. at the same point that you were before. Right. And you don't have to move it by a whole lot. Right. Right. Just the inch even might do it. You know. So the difference in the light output is not tremendous. I mean, you know. Right. So. Okay. Now with the, the electronic ballast, I think are a good good uh, choice these days. Okay, so the magnetic ballast obviously will will take the opposite from that. They're not going to be as energy efficient. They're going to run a little bit hotter. Um, right. What... They're going to be heavier. Yep. They are, a lot heavier. That they are. <laughs> that I do know. Um, now I the have... other thing is elect- the the uh, magnetic ballast. Also can hum a lot. Sometimes. Uh, that was my next question: is is that uh, isn't it the magnetic ballast that make a lot more noise? Yeah, they do. They tend to make a lot more noise, especially when they start getting old. Yep. The other thing is on the flip side, though, some of the electronic ballasts may interfere with some of your uh, electronic signals in your house. Okay. If they're not shielded properly, sometimes people report that their TV signals are getting messed up. Gotcha. Now, the other thing, that the other type of ballast that I've seen, and I want to preface this with saying that I, when I seen these, it was on doing really, really um, extreme do-it-yourself type uh, lighting setups, and I've seen the use of these coil ballasts. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, it was even when you you would buy this coil and you'd have to 
put it in your own its own housing and you really just had to do the whole thing and uh stuff like that is are these coil ballasts appropriate uh for hobbyists for hobby use um pros and cons stuff like that yeah i mean they're appropriate for hobby use and basically most all the ballasts that we're using right now are core coil ballasts all the all the standard magnetic ballasts if you were to open up one of the boxes, say so the you know the ballast come the the, the ballast are sold in mm-hmm. by BFO lighting or sunlight supply, and you were to open the casing, you'll inside you'll see that there's a core coil ballast, it's a capacitor, and so on. Gotcha. So sometimes uh, another thing you might want to point out in, in this in this uh, podcast, oftentimes you'll find that people will complain that the ballast isn't working right. Uh huh. And in most cases, all they have to do is switch out the capacitor. Now, is that something that's that's uh, user serviceable in a, in a ballast? Yeah, you can pretty much you can open up the container, and you can basically it's, you've got leads connecting to the capacitor, and you can just yank the capacitors out. Okay, so it's not something that's soldered down. We it's actually a, a removable. Part no, of typically the... they're not soldered down. They just there's a little uh, crimp connector that you can just slide onto these. Okay. Now, before we yeah. before we, but you have to be careful with the capacitors. They tend to store a charge. That so was my next thing. Is that before we start telling people to go <laughs> digging in their ballast, we might want to warn them that these ballasts have a tendency to store electricity, and you don't want to just go sticking your hands in them, or you might uh, get a little bit right. more than you bargained for. Right. So, if you're not um, savvy with electronical components, you're not familiar with what you're doing, or you're not willing to take the risk, then take it to somebody who is. Right. So. But oftentimes, people tend to say, my ballast isn't working. And most of the time, it's usually the capacitor that's gone bad. Now, that being said, that's a good point because that's that's probably something that can help save people a little bit of time, energy, and most importantly, money with, instead right. of replacing the entire ballast. Now, let's say I was in a situation where my ballast, I said it wasn't working and you know, you help. You know, what would you do, or what would you recommend somebody do to help determine that that's what it is, or is it like a a, a trial and error thing? Oh, you, it, just replace it and see if it makes it better, or is there something we can do to test to see if that's what it is? Well, if you if you if your ballast isn't working with one bulb, doesn't mean your ballast isn't working right. I mean, you got to try different bulbs and to make sure that it is definitely the ballast. Right. And then typically, there's not many things that can go wrong in a ballast. If you open up the ballast and you see, you know, this little can with oil oozing out of it or some black gunk oozing out of it, uh-huh. then you know your capacitor has gone bad. Okay. Now, is that the same in electronic and in a, in a magnetic ballast? The electronic ballasts are pretty much sealed. Okay. So the, you, you don't have this. There's not much a typical user can do. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, the electronics of it is a lot more complicated, and they, they probably won't be ex- yeah, figured as much. faster that we can easily replace. But in a magnetic ballast, that, that's probably yeah. likely that we there can get There's only three things inside a magnetic ballast. If you open up that case and take a look, if it's a standard ballast, then you if it's a probe start ballast, then you'll basically see a core and coil and a capacitor. Gotcha. And if it's, you know, the... Uh, the other ballasts uh, would, that'll have an igniter with it. Cool. So there's a, a little tip for people to help troubleshoot if they have to troubleshoot their ballasts. Right. I mean, I I'm, and this is kind of anecdotal at this point, but uh, several people I've talked to, uh, often they've said that, oh, we put this new lamp in and it looks yellow. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And so sometimes what happens is I've, I've recommended to people to just, you know, change your capacitor. And they've reported back and said, oh, yeah, now the light looks uh, looks white. doesn't look as yellow as before. So it's something that you've just kind of hearsay. You haven't actually done any of your testing on it to to confirm that. Well, I mean, there's enough anecdotal evidence. I've, I've told this to several people, and these people all had, like, these old ballasts, a 10-, 12-year-old ballast. Uh-huh. And as soon as they changed their capacitor, they said, oh, my bulb is burning brighter now. Gotcha. Now, with the, these capacitors, um, is that something you would go to the, the manufacturer to get specifically, or is there another place you might go to look for those? You can probably get, you should be able to get the capacitors from from any of the lighting supply places. Okay. Yeah. We'll have to keep an eye out for those. I don't think I've ever seen those, but uh, I've never looked yeah, for them. Yeah, <laughs> what you can do is if you open, let's say you have an advanced palace mm-hmm. or a magnetic, if you open up their catalog. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you exactly which capacitor oh, okay. they recommend. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, move on real quick from ballast to the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, I did a whole show on this type. Well, ballast also. I didn't get that far in depth, but um, I did a show on reflectors, and that's something that a lot of people tend to, I guess, not realize the importance of it. I mean, you can put right. a lot of money into getting the best lights that you can and then blow it all if you don't put good reflectors on there. Can you take a minute and kind of talk to us about um, reflectors and the, and the importance of getting good reflectors and stuff like that? Yeah, I think the reflector is is a very, very important part of the sliding equation. Uh, what the reflector is doing for you is, if you think think about a lamp, it's radiating light in all directions. And what we want to do is try and capture all the light and put it where we want it, right inside our tank. Mm-hmm. So that's the function of the reflector, is to take the light that's coming out of the bulbs and put them into the tank and spread them out. Right. Right. So when you're working with reflectors, if you're a designer of reflectors, designing a reflector, you basically have to think about two things. Do I want a tightly focused beam with high intensity, or do I want to diffuse the beam and spread out? Okay, so you're always trading off intensity versus spread. Right. And You've only got so much light to work with. That's right. Right. It's like taking gonna... a jug of water, and I can either spread and make it, you know, a couple of feet tall if I put it in a long, narrow glass, mm-hmm. or I can spill it on the floor and make it cover a wide area and just be like a few you know, micron thick. Exactly. Well, it's the same idea with the reflectors, too. So the reflectors are basically trading off density and spread. But a good reflector makes a lot of difference because you're not wasting any of the light. Now, what about what about somebody that wants to, to do a, a total DIY reflector and they want to go to the hardware store and, and just buy a sheet of aluminum? Is there... Uh, differences in the in, geometry of the reflector is important. The what? The geometry of the reflector. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's something I was going to get to in just a moment. Before we even get to the geometry of the reflector, um, what I wanted to talk or, or ask about was the the actual coating or quality of the reflective surface in there. Is there something that if somebody wanted to make their own, uh, is there something specific that they should look for, um, other than, or is it just you know a standard sheet of aluminum? Well, you want a shiny surface. I don't want to reflect as much light as possible. 
So there are reflecting surfaces out there now that'll do 94, 95, 92% reflection. Mm-hmm. The difference between a 90 and a 94% reflection is not that high. It's a geometry that's going to then play a big role. Right. Okay, so I can always take a 94% reflector and not have it designed well enough, and a 90% reflective surface can beat that. Yep. So the geometry is important. And, you know, one of the things I tell people, a quick way to figure out if your reflector is doing at least one of the functions right, which is putting all your light into the tank, is to see if you're actually lighting up the room or you're lighting up your tank. Right, yeah. <laughs> and I oftentimes, you know, see people's tanks, and as soon as they open the hood or anything, it's like the whole room's lit up. <laughs> yep. You know, so it's it's spreading out the light in directions that you don't want it to spread out the light. Right. Kind of putting you want to make sure it's focused tank. in there. So now right. when we're talking about the... So the closed reflectors tend to do a lot better than the open ones. Right. Now, one of the things that I remember seeing when, when working with the reflectors is there's um, there's there's funny shapes that, that they come into. They're not just, you know, semi-spherical or, you know, half just round. They're, there's right. actually a series of bends all the way along them, right. and usually and a, a V-shaped bend at the very top. And Right. You want to talk about those for a minute and why those are there? Yeah, part of those bends are all there to get the light out from behind the lamp. The light that's going from coming in, you know, going up above. We need to make sure that we can get that out without hitting the lamp again. Right. So, so you'll you... see a lot of times the reflectors have a small V yep. on top. And that V is then designed to actually make the light hit that V and get pulled away from the lamp, bounce a couple of times and come out rather than hitting back and going into the lamp again. Right, because that's essentially wasted light, and then it's going to add additional heat to the bulb itself. Right, exactly. Both of which you don't want to do. So these bends are basically performing that function to some extent of trying to make sure that we can pull all the light that's being emanated in the top direction out in a manner where it doesn't go and get back into the bulb itself. Right, you want to get it all down into the tank and get it away from the bulb. So, No, no, that's that's a good summary. before, that's why some of these reflectors do well, like you know, some of the larger reflectors. They do a better job. Gotcha. Because now you can actually take the light away from the lamp without the without it having to hit the lamp. Mm-hmm. Despite small reflector, you can't get the light out of there easily. Right. Yeah, because there's not as much room for it to move. Right. So, all right. Well, um, before we wrap up the show, uh, is there any last topics that we didn't cover that you wanted to throw in on the, the subject of metal halide lights? Uh, I think we pretty much covered all of these. The other one that we might want to mention here is that if you look at the manufacturer's specification for most of the lamps that we use, they recommend that they always be used in enclosed fixtures, Mm -hmm. enclosed luminaires. Um, We often in the hobby don't do that. And partly, the recommendation partly is from the fact that Sometimes the lamps can rupture. Right. That's one of the modes of failure of these lamps. And when that happens, then you could spew a lot of some of the mercury and some of these other things into your tank. That is a nightmare to get rid of. Oh, I bet. Uh, so 
you know, we should at least be aware of what the manufacturer's recommendations are. And now we, this is now that's something that it, and I know we when we talked about it early, the topic earlier we didn't mention this, but um, when dealing with uh, the double-ended metal halide bulbs because they don't have that outer shielding around them. It's even more important with them that they're yeah, inside. Yeah, the UV is another issue that we yeah. have to deal with with these lamps. Yep, exactly, because they don't have and, that outer envelope. So not only right. does that outer envelope provide a little bit of protection in case that the inner envelope ruptures, right. but it also provides some UV shielding, and the, right. the double-ended bulbs don't have that. So, Well, some double-ended bulbs do have it. Some don't. Right. That's, a, that's another area that we need to look at a little more carefully. And the other thing is that we don't. Nobody's tested really all the UV output from these lamps. Mm-hmm. Um, so UV can be harmful. Yes. And if it is, we, at this point, I would suggest we play it safe and say, okay, you know, we'll use glass shields and <laughs> yeah. protect the UV from damaging not just the corals but also us. Yeah, exactly, because we're in then around the tank or right. sitting next to it or have our arms in it, and exactly. before you know it, you're going to have a sunburn on your arms. And Right. Yeah. So, yeah, because that's once, a good suggestion. I mean, once the envelope, it, it's kind of interesting, because once the outer envelope breaks, well, these, let's say take a single-ended lamp, mm-hmm. and if you were to have an outer envelope that had a hole in it, for example, you would be spewing out a lot of UV. Just out of because, that small hole? Yeah. And I've had the situation where that's that it's actually burned the corals. Really? The lamp had a small hole develop in it. Wow. I guess water splashed on it or something. Uh-huh. And it cracked it and it had a small hole. And the next next day there was a wide band of death in the tank. Wow. From the excess UV. These single ended lamps they basically have this borosilicate glass that's used and that shields the UV, mm-hmm. absorbs the UV. When that breaks, you can you can get a lot of UV coming out of it. Yeah, and you know, that's interesting because I knew that the there was a lot of UV that was protected, but I didn't realize that it was that much. I mean, having a small crack or hole in that could have caused that much damage in that short of time. I didn't realize that it was that well, much. Well, yeah, because mercury, they use mercury in there. And the mer- mm-hmm. one of the, mercury emits a lot of UV. Hmm. Well, see, Even, we're all learning something here. <laughs> Yeah, so we have to be careful. So if the outer envelope breaks on these lamps, you know, just stop, just throw the lamp away. Oh yeah, don't use them. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, we're hitting about the end of our time here, so uh, I wanted to thank you for coming back on to the Talking Reef podcast um, and talking about your reef keeping article. Um, so on that note, uh, thank you, and hopefully we'll have you back on the show in the future. Hey, yeah, thanks again for inviting me, and this was fun. I'll do it again. No problem. I hope we will in the future. <laughs> okay. Great. Thanks to Sanjay Joshi for doing the interview this month, and, of course, special thanks to you for coming and checking out the episode. As usual with the Reef Keeping editions of the Talking Reef podcast, I'm going to wrap up the show by doing a quick rundown of the topics that you can find in this month's edition of the Reef Keeping Magazine. Starting off with a featured article titled The, Con- the Conservative-Minded Aquarius by Sarah Lardizable. Frag of the Month section, on this one is on the propagation of anchor and brain corals by Greg Hiller. And of course, this month's Tank of the Month, make sure you go and check that out. 
regular columns this month, a uh, for this month's Reef Alchemy uh, by Randy, is a how-to guide to reef aquarium chemistry for beginners, part one on the saltwater itself. Of course, the facts of light column, uh, that's the article that we just interviewed uh, Dr. Joshi on. Um, they've got a new Mazna newsletter that you can go and check out there. Uh, and then a science notes and news. Uh, this topic is on seahorse fertilization. So uh, if you're interested in seahorses and seahorse breeding, it's definitely something you might want to check out there. And of course, uh, the reef keeping top 10 list. And this month you get top 10 injuries you have had where, that were caused by your by your reef. So make sure you head over to reefkeeping.com. Check out the article by uh, Sanjay and all the other articles that are over there this month and every other month at reefkeeping.com. That's going to wrap up the show for this month. Uh, I will talk to you next week, or show for this week. I'll talk to you next week with a regular Talking Reef episode uh, found at talkingreef.com. Thanks a lot, and I will talk to you all later.